self-esteem. It's implicated in numerous psychological disorders, depression, social anxiety, eating disorders, sexual dysfunction, avoidance, coping, hypervigilance, disorganized attachment, and more. <laughs> Essentially, if we carry around inner beliefs, both language and felt, that we are less worthy, less deserving, match up poorly against other individuals, then it immediately makes us self-conscious around others. The more self-conscious, the more cognitive load, the more we find social gatherings difficult. It makes all kinds of, uh, it essentially creates low expectations of getting our needs met. People with high and he or healthy self-esteem, I should say, expect love, expect that their endeavors will be rewarded and enjoy connecting and developing new skills, whereas people with low self-esteem and there are various uh, clinical standards that can establish low self-esteem tend to compensate for a lack of their lack of self-acceptance by seeking a compensatory amount of success and fame and attention, trying to fill up that lack of self-worth with external recognition, external approval, external um, validation. And of course, that backfires because the more we are actually trying to get our attention uh, and we're trying to get love and get approval, uh, it tends to make us overbearing or difficult or preoccupied or hypervigilant or uh, constantly seeking reassurance. People with low self-esteem tend to focus on not making mistakes and tend to take very non-critical comments as criticism. Most people uh, in some area of their life experience low self-esteem, whether it's in relationships or work or creative endeavors or somewhere, there will be an inner experience of extreme self-doubt coupled with uh, dis inner self-disparagement. Now, some suggest that the way to deal with low self-esteem is by taking constant positive actions. This is an idea that's heard very often in 12-step programs, the idea that if we volunteer, are of service, do countless good acts, that we'll feel better about ourselves and that will counteract the low self-esteem. And while on paper it sounds like that kind of makes sense, in actuality, it doesn't work. There are plenty of people who work in wonderful, volunteering, helpful, pro-social work that help people that still experience depression and suicidal ideation and despair. If it was that simple that doing pro-social actions would relieve low self-esteem, one would expect that in jobs and uh, livelihoods where people were doing pro-social acts that we would see a sharp diminishment of incidents of depression 
and suicidal ideation and obsessive thinking, and that's just not the case. Now, that might sound weird for a Buddhist to say, and the Buddha does say that taking harmless, compassionate, pro-social actions creates good feeling. So there is a benefit for acting through compassion and kindness, volunteerism. It will make you feel good, but it won't necessarily address your feelings of low self-esteem. Now that might sound strange, that it will create good, positive feelings, but low self-esteem might also remain intact. But actually, if we investigate a little bit, we can understand why that's the case. There was a paper by two Yale neuropsychologists named Johnson and Kim, and it had the, the title, Activity in the Ventral Medial Prefrontal Cortex During Self-Related Processing. What that means is, what part of your brain are you using when you think about yourself? And it turns out, through fMRI scans, they determined that when we think about ourselves, we use the ventral medial, which is a, essentially a part in the left front of the uh, prefrontal cortex. But when we think or validate or assess other people, or a restaurant, or a movie we've seen, or a book we've read, if you're asked to assess anybody else but yourself, you don't use that region at all. You use the dorsal medial. The dorsal medial is hardwired to logical, patient, evaluating parts of the brain. So that's how you evaluate, generally, uh, restaurants and very often other people. But when you evaluate yourself using the ventral medial, that is hardwired to the oldest emotional parts of the brain where there is no logic to be found. So all the good, kind work that you do, all the wonderful things that you do in the hope to build your self-esteem, to have a better story about yourself, guess what? It doesn't have anywhere near the amount of influence than something else. What is that something else? Well, the great neuropsychologist Matthew Lieberman in his book did these fascinating studies where he showed that the area of the brain that essentially lights up when we think about ourselves, when we have self-related thoughts, only <coughs> actively lights up at another time, and that's when other people are talking about us. So your view of yourself is not influenced by all the wonderful things you do, how hard you work, how much you show up for people, but it is deeply influenced by what other people have told you. And moreover, he found that the younger in life we are, the more that region lights up and stores memories. So if you're a child, in, while growing up, if your caretakers or peers say that you're not good enough or they unfavorably compare you to other people, or you're ignored regularly, or you're on the receiving end of anger, these beliefs not only activate the self-assessment, but they get stored deeply in the right hemisphere's orbital frontal region, and those two areas via the insula and other neural circuits are very, very tightly wired. So when you evaluate yourself and think about yourself and create the story of who am I, you're not engaged in an objective process. You are simply repeating 
the stories that other people told you when you were a kid and other points of your life. As Lieberman indicates, when we think about ourselves, we're not in any way reviewing who we are, but rather strategizing how we can fit in with other people. That's a pretty profound thing. We tend to believe that when we think about ourselves, that in some way there must be some objective, there must be something that we're in some way capturing, but we're not. We're not even accessing the parts of the brain that have uh, channels to our most vibrant and vivid memories of our actions. We're simply connecting with a part of our brain that stores what other people told us. So you can volunteer in an animal shelter for five years, but if somebody says you're a schmuck <laughs> in, who's in your family, guess which one you're going to wind up hardwired to when you start thinking about yourself. The Western concept of self is that there's this reliable, coherent thinking entity in charge. Somewhere in there, there's a thinking machine that makes decisions. That it's unique and separate from emotions, that it's logical, and that view of self, that there's an inner me making the decisions, is actually culturally ingrained and historically a passing phase. For many, 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 many eons, people had very different beliefs of what <coughs> constitutes identity and self. For many years, people believed in what could be categorized a universal interdependent self. In Vedic religions, this was found in some Gnostic practices and also in today's New Age views and even in some Mahayana forms of practice. And the idea is that your thoughts and your fears and your anxieties and your anger and your emotions, these are all overlays, and that somewhere beneath, buried beneath all that, if you swept it all away, there's this pure, compassionate light of kindness and compassion, and that compassionate light connects you with all other beings. This idea was best explained by a famous Buddhist named Alan Watts, who was uh, probably the most, uh, one of the most important Buddhists in the 1960s. And the way he explained this belief is that he said that in these spiritual philosophies, the idea is that God, who was everything, got bored because there was no other entity to play with. And so, if you read some of the early Vedic texts, the idea is that to have some fun, to do something, God essentially split himself amongst countless billions of beings. And to make the game fun, he forgot that he was God in each of these beings. And the game, he does it really well. He forgets who he is. And so the idea is that one day, each of us in our own time wakes up, realizes all of our worries, fears, thoughts, and personality quirks are just kind of uh, detritus stuff that's essentially covering up our true innate goodness. 
And that deep down inside, there's this lovely, lovely, beautiful, divine, compassionate light. And the idea is that uh, we're all of a, sim a single self and that in death, our unique individual personalities fall away and all that's left is the divine. Neither of these beliefs are actually what the Buddha proposed. He proposed something far different than both. Before I explain exactly what the Buddha believed about self and why it's so radically important for us to understand, I'd like to explain that the current view of self, that somewhere inside of you there exists a coherent thinking entity, and that if you could find out really what it is and what makes it tick and what it really wants, you would be happy, is simply not true. First of all, Damasio, Ledoux, and all the great neuroscientists of today have shown that, in fact, reason and thought plays a very small part of cognition and decision-making. And, in fact, every decision we make is informed by multiple emotional and subconscious midbrain and right hemispheric activities that we have no control over and have nothing to do with thought and have everything to do with sensations in the body and other effects. Two, as virtually every psychologist will tell you, if you only identify with your thoughts and you believe that your anxiety, your panic, your procrastination, your fear, all the things that get in the way of your will and your goals, if you believe that's not who you are, you're in for a hell of a ride because you will experience procrastination, anxiety, panic, uh, disappointment in your endeavors. The reason why these things exist is not because we have a failure of willpower. These are simply other parts of the mind trying to get your attention. When we procrastinate on a project, it's not because we don't have willpower. It's because the emotional part of the brain doesn't want to do what our conscious wants to do. And very often in my work, doing one-on-one -on -one work with people, when we investigate what's behind procrastination or panic or fear, we find that there are extremely legitimate concerns that will be rejected, abandoned, that people don't <coughs> like what we do, that we really don't want to do what, we're, what we have told ourselves we need to do. If we believe that the only thing that matters is our thought, then all the times we sit with other people and we connect non-verbally don't matter and are a waste of time. That's what your thinking mind will tell you. That's why when we get together with people who are mourning or sad and we feel powerless and we think that it's pointless just to be there with them and hold their emotions and mirror non-verbally what they're feeling, that's why that's so awkward because the thinking mind doesn't understand that the emotional mind is of exceptional value in healing and in connection and in how we live our lives. Social psychologists show us that as we move from one situation to another, our personalities change radically. The person I am right here in front of you, the, the Buddhist know-it-all, blanking about, about this or that, is very different than the guy who uh, hangs out with his friends or goes to watch some stupid movie or, you know, the different situations that I'm in. There are different 
feelings of self, different feelings of who I am, different emotions, different bits of knowledge. The Buddha rejected all that, as we'll see. He also rejected the universal cosmic interconnected self. He actually wrote about that, or not wrote, he said in the, in the Water Snake Sutta, for something to be a self, it must exert some form of control, at least over itself, no? And the people around him agree. But if the self is universal, to have control over yourself would also mean you control every other being. Do you? And they say, no. And he says, additionally, if you believe that the self is universal, then you would believe that after death you become timeless, eternal, and not subject to any change. This would be the belief of a fool. He's a little bit disparaging there. <laughs> Certainly, on another occasion, the Buddha makes a profound observation that if we really believe that we are connected, somehow hardwired to every other being, there is so much suffering going on out there. At any given moment, beings are dying, experiencing illness and pain, emotional <coughs> distress. If you are wired to everyone, you have signed yourself up for unending, limitless distress and despair. Every tree that falls, every animal that dies, every person that expires would be eventually overwhelming. This is not the case. What the Buddha taught is actually significantly different. But it's fascinating, and it turns out, given today's views of neuropsychology and clinical psychology, he was 2,500 years ahead of his time. The Buddha's proposal is that rather than trying to build up a greater sense of self, or to, to try to figure out who am I really, that instead we should move thinking about self entirely from our endeavors. Every single speculation of who I am, no matter what we land on, when we try to figure out what is my true nature, what is my true self, the Buddha says, causes suffering. The Buddha proposes in the Pali Canon that we are a process, not a self. A process comprised of feelings, emotions, sensations, and thoughts, and unconscious perceptions. We are complex. And that each of those components, or aggregates as they're called, are changing. And that because each of them are changing, and the sense of who you are right now, your, what comprises your experience, is comprised of body feelings, emotions, thoughts, and perceptions of the world. Because all of those elements are slightly, slightly changing, you are constantly in a state of flux. There is no way you can ever come up with an exact definition of who you are without leaving out something important. You can never, ever put your finger on your true nature because it doesn't exist. You are an unfolding process. That's pretty amazing recognition 
But it immediately, in Buddhist therapy, addresses all of the issues when we learn how to let go of selfing, of the ingrained tendency to try to compare ourselves <laughs> to other people, to try to evaluate how good or bad we are, to try to assess the moment we realize that that is always a process that leads to suffering, there is a great deal of freedom that comes up. The Buddha, again in the water snake, if I believe I have a self, or any view of self that is constant, internal, and not subject to change, then I'll be caught in a tangled mess of views and opinions, a prison of self-beliefs. And limited by self, such views, the average mind is stuck in sorrow, pain, confusion. In other words, the very activity of trying to figure out who am I really, how do I compare, what's going to happen to me, all the list of selfing the Buddha says we engage in, all it does is create what he calls papancha, spiraling out obsessive thinking that never stops. Why does it do that? Because we are a process that's unfolding and changing. Therefore, we'll never be able to come up with an answer. So therefore, every time we try to figure out who am I really, we just wind up spinning out, arguing back and forth with complex arguments that never are resolved because there's no way we can answer that question correctly. Before I s explain the way to let go of constant selfing, I should say that in every moment of time, we have a transient or fleeting self. Right now, I experience, as sitting up here teaching, I experience a certain idea of who I am, as do you experience a certain idea of who you are. But later on tonight, that experience of who you are will subtly change, as it will be for me. Here's a great example that I use to show how, I, uh, how self and the thing that <coughs> self claims can change. I'm from Brooklyn, Brooklynite. So if, if a Manhattanite says, eh, I don't like Brooklyn, I might get upset. You talk, hey, buddy as if I would ever say that. I'm a neurotic Jew. Hey, buddy. What are you talking about? Brooklyn's my borough. What you think? But I would, feel, I would feel like, hey, you're talking about my borough, right? So I feel an identification with Brooklyn. That's part of who I am. But then, cut to the day not so long ago when Brooklyn voted for Clinton by 20 points over Sanders. Brooklyn. <laughs> That's not who I am. I no longer have anything to do with it. I'm just a smart guy living in a dumb borough. <laughs> so our idea of who we are, what we're about, changes depending upon the situation. Tom Jeff, one of the people I've studied with, great monk, uses the example of when we're young and somebody insults our younger sister or our, our parents in the playground and we get all upset. And we say, that's my parent you're talking about. How dare you? But then when you come home and your sister plays with your toy or your parent doesn't watch, let you watch TV, then we're like, I don't know who these people are. 
They're not a part of me. I'm stuck with these idiots, these imbeciles. So again, what self is, what self is connected to, what it identifies with, what it seems, what it believes its responsibilities are, completely changes situationally. The Buddha called these chaitasikas, the idea that we go from one subtly different mind state to another, to another, to another, and each state has its own obligations and goals and responsibilities and sense of what it is and what it's not. We can use these fleeting sense of self strategically. So, for example, before I teach, I can tell myself, oh, I'm an insightful person. I've got something that these people want to hear about. And that idea of self might give me permission and conviction and courage and confidence to talk and prattle on for a half an hour in front of you. And that's fine. That's a strategic use because it's an impermanent. I'm not latching onto that idea that I'm always insightful or always have something to say. But if I carry that story with me, if I try to make that who I am on a lasting basis, boy, will I suffer. Because I have days that I am as dim as a banana. <laughs> not a saying. It is not a saying. <laughs> I'm just dumb. Now it is. I, I have days when I'm just... And if I live by that idea that I'm insightful or resourceful or whatever I tell myself, if I cling to it, if I carry that around with me, then I will suffer. And then another part of my mind, when I say something dumb, will pipe up and go, no, you're, you're an idiot. You are an idiot. And then I'll go back and forth in my mind. Am I insightful or am I an idiot? The truth is I'm both. Depending upon where I am, where the process is, what feelings, what emotions, who I'm with situationally, whether I'm tired or not, whether I've eaten or not, blah, 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 blah. Ad nauseum, you got a process there. And sometimes I'm smart and sometimes I'm not. The idea that I have to figure out who I am and come up with it only causes obsessive worry. And eventually, as we see, and because we generally define ourselves by what other people told us, especially when we're kids, and because we have negativity bias, we tend to fixate mostly on the negative things. The moment we start up with it, we're probably going to wind up in a negative place. A great study found that when people think about themselves is when they're the most miserable, because we never land on positive or accurate or objective self-evaluation. There's ways out of self-ing that you can do. You can surround yourself with as many people as possible, be as emotionally honest as you can be, and soak in all the different things that they say about you, and eventually you'll come up with such a confusing mess of evaluations and, and statements about who you are that you'll give up, because you won't be able to. You're ventral medial prefrontal cortex wired to the amygdala, the right orbital frontal, and the other circuit loops won't be able to make sense of it. And you'll give up. And that's one process you could do. It's not a very fun one. An easier one is that begin to develop an embodied awareness. Start noticing what's going on internally when you crave something, when you feel you need to tell somebody something, when you're obsessing 
when you're angry, whenever you're in, in a state that feels important or most who you are or indicative or uh, in any way notable, don't go with the impulse, whatever the impulse is, to tell somebody off, to tell somebody something important, to make a decision, whatever it is, take a moment and check what's going on in your body. How does your breath feel? What's going on in your belly? What's going on in your chest? What's going on in your throat? What emotional state is then? What mood are you in? If you do this, I guarantee you, you will find that your decision-making is not what you think it is. You are not a thinking machine. That part of your brain that creates the illusion of self, the inner chatter, the inner voice that creates the sense of, of constancy and cohesion, once you start feeling into the body, you will find that, in fact, every decision you make is not made by some rational, logical inner you, but is actually the result of a process a process involving feelings and emotions and perceptions and states of the body. And when you do that, over time, amazingly, this need to self-define and figure out who am I really and what am I all about, and all the suffering that that entails begins to drop away. There's never in my life any time that I am less captivated by thinking about myself than when I'm on a retreat because in being embodied by a few days on end I stop thinking that there's something in me that's constant again the illusion that's created by that inner chatter that creates the illusion that there's something constant but the moment I feel into the feelings and the body states and the breath and everything else that's present I realize how little a role thought plays in every action, in every event in my life. And that is not scary. That's liberating. Mm -hmm.